Alright, take your Bibles, turn to Revelation chapter 10. We did get word that our couple down in Florida is listening. Uh, they, they are listening, and so we're going to say hello to Jack and Sue. Everybody, on count of three, say hello, Jack and Sue. One, two, three. Hello, Jack and Sue. Alright. There's a test when you get home, is what Alan said. So, they're probably wondering where last week's was, because I forgot the recorder last week, and so... I didn't record. <laughs> Why did we didn't see that up last? We missed that one. So y'all just tell them it was bad. Bad stuff went on. All right, chapter ten. This is what we're doing. How many of you have ever? Uh, how many of you have ever done the Where's Waldo pictures? You know what I'm talking about? The Where's Waldo pictures, where it's a group of people all around, and there's one guy you're trying to find. Uh, it's a guy that's got a red and white shirt on, striped, and uh, you try to find him in the midst of all these things. It's kind of like uh, those scavenger hunts when you're trying to find objects. Um, you know, the key to that is, it, it seems like it, there are times when I've looked at the picture so long, I've said, there is no way he is in this picture. I mean, there's just no way. By now, I would have seen him. I mean, you know, you do the thing where you, you start on the corner and you go all the way up and you just look and he's just not there, but he's always... There, even when you can't see him, he's always there. I, uh, I, I there's a show on TV that I like to watch called The Amazing Race. Anybody watch The Amazing Race? They start it's a race around the world. They start uh, this past Sunday was the first Sunday, and there are two guys on there from uh, um, Kentucky, and uh, they well, his name is not Bubba, it's a uh, Booker. <laughs> it's close, and they—they they are what you would imagine a small town Kentucky duo would be. They're best friends for life, and uh, but they, the first task was they had to run into this Napa Valley field, Napa Valley, California, and they had to pull down. They had to pull down these hot air balloons, and there was a clue in eleven out of the one hundred of them. And so every time they pulled out, and you could just hear them getting frustrated because one team, it took three pull-downs and they had it and they were off. And they, these Booker and uh, T-Bone or whatever it was from Kentucky, I don't know, Tom, they were going at it and it took them probably an hour to find it. It's just like you're looking for a needle in a haystack, right? Well, the reason that all that makes a difference tonight is this. We're at a point in chapter 10 of the book of Revelation when I believe John is having a little bit of where is God in the midst of all this moment. Now we've talked about everything happening coming from God, but John has been inundated over and over with images of destruction and death. And it seems that literally life is collapsing around him at every level. The silence of his voice it's screaming out, what is going on? Why is this happening? God, are you still in the midst of this? All right. John found himself in that kind of dilemma. Half the world's population has died. Disasters are striking at every turn. Evil appears to be reigning supreme. And suddenly in the midst of that, there's a break in the action. Do you remember between seal 6 and 7, there was a break? And we had a little interlude in there. Well, this is between trumpet 6 and trumpet 7, and right in the midst of that is a little break. There is an interlude that gives us a chance to catch our breath, regain a proper perspective. 
Out of nowhere, a mighty angel appears and a little book is given to John. And it was reminded, John, you still have a mission. I think that this little interlude is a couple of things. First is to remind John, God's still there. But also to remind John, you have a job to do. Sometimes it's easy to get caught up in the glory of a moment that we forget the job we have to do. And John in this place was in danger, I think, of just getting so wrapped up in what he was experiencing that he forgot the mission to which God had called him. Because remember, what was the whole reason God showed John all this stuff? To write it down, communicate it, let other people know, right? It's almost like God can see John standing there with his jaw on the ground in awe of what's happening, wondering about it, and is like, Hey, John, come on. you got a job to do. Let's go. Now, God's going to do it a little more tactfully and gloriously and spectacularly than snapping the, as Lisa Brooks called them, the mom fingers to get the, you know, to get the children's attention. But the idea here is he's going to say, let's remember what's going on. All right. So in Revelation chapter 10, verse 1. Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven. He was robed in a cloud with a rainbow above his head. His face was like the sun and his legs were like fiery pillars. He was holding a little scroll which lay open in his hand. He planted his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land. And he gave a loud shout like the roar of a lion. When he shouted... The voice of seven thunders spoke. And when the seven thunders spoke, I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven say, Seal up what the seven thunders have said and do not write it down. Then the angel I had seen, seen standing on the sea and on the land raised his right hand to the heaven and he swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created the heavens and all that is in them, the earth and all that is in it, and the sea and all that is in it, and said, There will be no more delay. But in the days when the seventh angel is about to sound his trumpet, the mystery of God will be accomplished just as he announced to his servants the prophets. Then the voice that I heard from the heavens spoke to me once more and said, Go, take the scroll that lies open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel and asked him to give me the little scroll. He said to me, Take it and eat it. It will turn your stomach sour, but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. I took the little scroll from the angel's hand and ate it. It tasted as sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my stomach turned sour. Then I was told, you must prophesy again about many peoples, nations, languages, and kings. Alright? So, three things that we're going to talk about tonight. We're going to go right down in order, and I'll give them to you as we go. But the idea that I want you to get is that we're going to talk about the one that delivers the message but I want to focus and get our attention on the fact of what the message is. Okay, We're going to talk a little bit, about, like I said, about who it is that's delivering the message. But the important thing is the message. All right. And so the first thing that we see here is that God's Word must be accepted. Okay, That we must accept what God has determined. And what we're going to find out here in just a minute is... Sometimes that means accepting what has been revealed, and sometimes that means accepting what hasn't been revealed. Alright? And so what we have here is God's Word has to be revealed. Let me ask you a question real quickly. Who do you think this angel is? Okay. There's Gabriel and Michael, maybe one of them. Any other thoughts? 
powerful if he's controlling the sea and the land both. Right. Okay. Read, just look at chapter 10. Forget that it says the first part of verse 1 for a moment, okay? We're going to come back there. If I just read this to you, who would you think it described? He was robed in a cloud with a rainbow above his head. His face was like the sun and his legs were like fiery pillars. It's like Christ. Almost word for word taken from chapter 1, right? So there are some scholars that say this is Christ because the fact that he is described as someone that only God is described in that way or Christ. I mean, no, no other person is described as a rainbow surrounding them or clouds. In the Old Testament, a cloud represented God's presence. Can you think of places in the Old Testament where clouds were prominent? Moses in the wilderness, okay. How They were guided... Uh, by cloud by day and a fire by night, right? Well, this description here has what? Uh, he's in the clouds and what are his feet like? Pillars of fire leading them, okay? There's some scholars that see as we've come out of this description of the, of the, uh, the trumpets that sounded like the plagues that this is like God is again saying this is the one who will guide you to a new promised land, to a new uh, place of rest, Okay? So you got that. Any other places in Scripture where clouds symbolize the presence of God that you can think of in the Old Testament? You mentioned Moses at you know the wilderness. Elijah. Elijah. Was it Elijah when the cloud passed by? Was that Elijah when the cloud passed by? Moses had one. Well, Elijah was in the in the cleft of the rock. He was saw he, the whisper and the wind came by. But you do have on Mount Sinai with God. God's on Mount Sinai and there's a cloud that kind of descends on Sinai. There's this idea of that. So there's those people that say, well, you see that cloud is there. A cloud symbolizes power, majesty, and authority. Uh, Psalm 104.3 says, God makes the clouds His chariot who walks on the wings of the wind. All right? Um, another reason some people say that it might be Jesus is, Charlie, what you said. He's, he controls both the land and the sea. But it's not just that He controls the land and the sea. What is He doing at the sea? He puts a foot on the sea, which means He's what? Walking on the sea, basically. There's some that see in here an imagery of Jesus when He walked on the water. The only one... It's, this is obviously not Peter. So the only two that walked on water that we know in Scripture were Jesus and then Peter when Jesus called him out. All right. There's the rainbow for his head. Uh, we know that in Genesis 9, the rainbow was a sign of God's blessing. But in Ezekiel, this description of God describes the one that a rainbow flows out of. In Revelation 4, remember what encircled the throne? A rainbow was encircling the throne. All right. His face was like the sun, brilliant, radiant, the presence of God. Um, Revelation 1.16 describes Jesus that way. You remember when Moses was with God and he came down and what it said, his face shone like the sun. Right? Okay. So we've got all these reasons that some people think it might be Jesus. Okay. Why would it not be Jesus? I'm going to do the classic teaching method of straddling the fence here. All right. Why would it not be Jesus? What could you point to here and say, well, it's not Jesus because... It doesn't say that it's him. It's one. Okay. Wouldn't John know Jesus face to face? Well, but he didn't. This is a different Jesus than the one walking that walked around the earth with him. 
I mean, the, the appearance would have been different. So, and, and John doesn't necessarily say this is Jesus, even in the early descriptions. He's, you know, we, we know that when we see it. I, I'm with you. What, what does it say there? Then I saw what? Another mighty angel. Okay? So, there are mighty angels, a couple of them in Scripture, in Revelation that are not Jesus, obviously. So the question comes down to what does the word another mean there? Okay? And I can tell you, in the Greek, it is, a, it is one word. It is spelled Alpha, Lambda, Lambda, Omicron, Nu. I know you're all excited about that. It's five letters in the Greek alphabet. And I saw this week a eight to ten pages written on what that word meant in this context. I'm not going to share that with you right now. Because to be honest, I only read about half of it and decided to move on. Alright? Here's the thing. It doesn't really matter. If this is Jesus, it's not going to change anything we know about Jesus, of who He is or what He's proclaimed. If it's not Jesus, it doesn't change anything about what we believe or proclaim about Him. The important thing is, it is the messenger sent to John at that moment with a specific message for him. It is either... Here's what I will say. It is either Jesus... Now, some people say, well, Jesus never referred to as an angel, but those of us that have been through the Old Testament know that the angel of the Lord appears, and many people think that's a pre-incarnate Jesus. Okay? So, whether it is Jesus... If it's not Jesus, it's got to be someone on the level of Gabriel or Michael or an archangel who is high in importance and is a direct representative. What is obvious here is John is, in his writing, evoking in us one who represents God Most High in the highest, most perfect way. Okay, So that's what's important here. The majestic picture here is to encourage us to listen to the message. Now, then it tells us that he had a little book. Another commentary, six pages on what it meant to be a little book. And what's interesting is it is a word that is, you know, the English language doesn't have this. If we want to call something little, we say little. When I was growing up, everybody said I was just like my daddy, so they called me Little Jimmy. It wasn't, they couldn't add something to the end of Jimmy to do it. In Brazil, they have that ability. Uh, in Brazil, several years ago, one of the most famous soccer players was a guy named Ronaldo, uh, and he was a great soccer player. A guy came along after him. Everybody started comparing him to him. But they were saying it's the little Ronaldo, Ronaldinho. And you just add that at the end and you can say that's little Ronaldo or little whatever. Well, in the Greek, it basically takes the word for scroll or book that we saw in the scroll that couldn't be opened or the book that was there and it says it's a little one of those. So whatever it is though, it's a message from God. It's a different book. Um, that is sealed, it's different than the sealed book of chapter 5. But this massive angel is holding it. Okay, Now think about this. He sets his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land. Okay, Now in their day and time, the only two things of the earth that mattered were the sea and the land. And if you control the sea and the land, you controlled the earth. In fact, to them, the most chaotic thing in the world was the ocean or the sea. 
it's still pretty crazy, isn't it? You ever stood on the edge of an ocean, on the on a beach, and watched the waves come in? You ever uh, been out in a boat somewhere and realized at some point that you may not have as much control as you would like to have? Susan watched. I, I walked through the other night. She was watching a documentary on the uh, cruise ship that just uh, decided they were going to buzz the tower of the land and wrecked and the guy jumped overboard and ran off whatever, you know, the captain, that one the the ocean is still a crazy place, now imagine 2,000 years ago with no powered vehicles at the complete mercy of the wind and you had to go out to sea without any communication for weeks and months at a time to make deliveries if you read, you just think back to some of those stories, and some of you may have to think a little farther back than others. Stories you read in high school, like Homer's The Odyssey. Okay? Now, think about those ancient stories. Where does all of the biggest problems occur? On the ocean. The sirens are out there, or the guys would go mad out there, or the rocks, Scylla and Charybda. I know you all know about these, I'm just reminding you. And so it was a place. And so for someone to stand on the sea showed extreme authority. All right? And what we see here is this one who stands, is in complete control, offers John a message to take to us. The idea here is we must accept whatever the Word of God is that comes to us. I think you realize, or I hope you realize, that if God decided not to tell us anything, He doesn't have to tell us anything. And if He didn't want us to know about Him, we would not know about Him. We only know what God has chosen to reveal. And whatever He has chosen to reveal, we must accept. So whatever the Scripture tells us about God, whether it is comfortable or uncomfortable in our society, we accept. I read this week uh, a guy that's around my age that, that writes uh, books and, and writes online some. That He talked about uh, how he used to read those statements in Scripture that said that I'm your God and I will rescue you. He used to say, you know what, I really didn't read that like it meant. Because when I read that I was always like, I will rescue you even though your life is completely safe. He said, the truth is, Scripture teaches us that God's people often find themselves in places where they need rescue. And so anybody that claims that it's a happy, always kind of life is not reading Scripture. We have to accept what God has revealed about Himself. That may mean that there are some times that we read the Scripture and it goes against what everything we've been taught in culture or society and we must trust what has been revealed. So we've got to accept what's been revealed. Here's the second thing. We've got to accept what's not revealed. What remains hidden. This is a fascinating verse to me. Verse 7. I mean, excuse me, verse 4. It's the seven thunders. Now, we've heard about the seven trumpets and the seven bowls and the seven seals. How many of you, before reading this just now, would if I were to ask you what was the other seven in Revelation, would have said, oh, the seven thunders. We don't hear about that, right? But what happened, it seems that John saw the seven thunders. Just like he saw the seven seals, just like he saw the seven trumpets, 
just like he saw the seven bowls. So why did God not want John write down the seven thunders? Anybody get awakened by thunder this morning, by the way? Okay. Eli walked right up to our room. I was getting ready when the th- big thunder hit a couple of times. He said, Daddy, it's storming outside. Did they cancel school? <laughs> no, son. We, it's snow only. All right. Unless tornadoes coming through. No. Why, why do you think God didn't want him to write down the seven thunder stuff? Well, y'all are talking up tonight. Huh? Might have been more they can handle? Thinking that God's like, you know what? They've gone through enough. It's not beneficial. That may be part of it. Maybe God just likes the fact that He has some mystery. You know what's interesting to me? You ever seen one of those guys, preachers on TV, or heard a preacher that says they got revelation figured out? And they got. Have you ever seen one of those guys that's got the charts and the graphs and the timelines and all that? I. Those guys can't have it figured out. Because something happens right here that we don't know. That's not written. Right. I mean, it tells us the seven thunders are there and God said don't let them know that. So I, my guess is there's a whole lot more going to happen than besides what we see in Revelation and the seven thunders is just one of those things. And we just have to accept God's in control and I can't figure it out. Listen, if I could figure out exactly how God's going to end this thing, God wouldn't be a very big God. Okay, so why do you think He would show it tell Him not to tell it? Yeah, I think that I think in some ways he's giving John, his beloved friend, a glimpse. But the idea is either that's not beneficial or that would be hurtful or they don't need to know that or John, I mean John at this point was probably close to 90. And John, I mean it's not like John is is he's going to walk away from the faith at 85 exiled on an island for his faith John was mature in his faith and just said John you can handle this perhaps but they can't so just seal it up I'm going to take care of it and one of the things that in our society everybody wants to figure out everything right they want to analyze and know everything and the truth is the scary thing is most people can know everything about us I mean it's just scary. Yeah, I, I, how many of you have been on Google Maps or Google Earth online and seen a picture of your house? That's a little frightening, isn't it? With your car sitting, With your car sitting in the driveway, or you know, somebody, I saw somebody today on Twitter. They they have a guy on there that posts funny things. He calls himself the Church Curmudgeon, and he just posts crazy things about you know life. And his things was, God, could you not have prepared me for seeing those kids playing on my yard in Google Earth? You know, could I, I could have gotten them off of there. I mean, we live in a world that wants to know everything about everybody at all times. Well, Daniel was told to seal up a book. Yeah. And God is perfectly okay with mystery. And to be a follower of Christ, sometimes we have to be perfectly okay with mystery. And we're not going to know it. Yeah. Yeah, well, you know, the truth is, if we knew it all, it wouldn't be faith. I mean, faith is trusting when we don't know everything. 
And what the scripture, what Revelation teaches over and over again is two, there are two or three themes that run throughout it. One is that God is worshipped in heaven. He is the only one worthy of our worship and he will be worshipped for eternity. It also tells us that even though very difficult physical moments may come, for those that are believers in Jesus Christ, we will be protected from the ultimate harm of judgment and will live with him forever. And really, I don't have to know all the details. I just live by faith in that. That doesn't mean that there isn't curiosity about the details. And that's not why, that's why Revelation, more books have been sold on Revelation than just about anything else uh, in the Christian popular world. It's interesting because preachers don't touch this book very much. There's a couple of sites that I go to when I've done all my research just to see how some guys have put it together in sermon form. A couple of websites I go to. And there were zero sermons or illustrations on Revelation 10 in this stockpile of thousands of sermons and illustrations. They just don't touch it. But part of that's because even as pastors, there's this danger for us to feel like we've got to explain it all. And I'm perfectly okay saying, I can't. And I don't know. And we have to accept that and live with it. That's what one pastor said. God is under no obligation to tell us everything. The fact is, He's told us more than we obey. Some things God shares with us, some things God keeps to Himself. I can live with it, and I can rejoice in it. It's a wonderful freedom to come to the realization that God is God and we are not. Instead of wondering about what we don't know, let's just get busy obeying what we do. I remember Adrian Rogers used to tell people when they would come to one of his big evangelistic things, start reading the Bible and obey what you understand. And then when you obey what you understand, you'll begin to understand more. And once you understand that, then you obey that. And it's just a process that you go through. Alright? I stayed there a little longer than I wanted to, but that's okay. Here's the second thing. God's Word not only must be accepted, but God's Word will be accomplished. Okay? It's going to happen. Alright, somebody tell me, how many of you like to be delayed in life? Anybody like that? I heard today about, a, I had a friend that was supposed to come eat lunch with me today, uh, but he commutes from Franklin to Lifeway, and the 65 was shut down today, right, on the way up. Two and a half hours to get to work, so he decided not to drive further to Goodlettsville today to have lunch, okay? When's it a good thing to be delayed? When is delayed... When is being delayed good? Yeah. It's people that sometimes a delay means that we don't get involved in something that can be detrimental, okay? Problematic, hurtful, painful, fatal. Anything else? So so either good news or bad news, you may not be prepared for it at a certain time, right? Anybody ever heard the term delayed gratification? And so sometimes putting things off and working for them and building up makes them more enjoyable. Most people that talk about delayed gratification just means that they would rather have it now. They just know they can't. All right. Here's what we see in this passage. When the seventh trumpet blows, there will be no more delay. I can tell you the best delay for people who are not believers in Christ is the fact that he's delayed is coming again. 
And there are times when as God's people we cry out, how long, God, we talked about this a couple weeks ago, how much longer, how long will it last? When are you coming? Come quickly, Lord Jesus. But the reason for His delay, it tells us in Scripture, is that He is delayed so that they might hear and come to faith in Him. But what happens here in John's vision is, God says, when the seventh trumpet blows... There's no delays. What we have in the seventh trumpet blowing, which is coming in another chapter or so, is the end rushes into being. It's almost as if these first few chapters have been the pretense, the prelude. They've been the warning sounds. And when it happens in chapter 10, what it means is it's coming. Isaiah 55.11 tells us that the Lord's word will be accomplished. It says, So my, my word that goes forth from my mouth, it shall not return to me void. It shall accomplish what I please, and it shall prosper the thing for which I sent it. Hebrews 4.12 reminds us that the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. When God speaks his word, it is certain and sure, truth and trustworthy. And in these verses we're taught we can trust him in two areas. First of all, he will confirm his own word. Look what happens there in verses 5 and 6. The angel had been standing on the sea and on the land. He swore by him who lives forever. He raised his right hand to heaven and swore by him. Now, here's the thing. Taking an oath in Scripture is not something that's to be done lightly. Even Jesus said in chapter 5 of the book of Matthew that we are not to have frivolous oaths. Or say, I swear or I promise. Right? His brother James taught the same thing in James 5.2. That doesn't mean that oaths aren't in Scripture because they are. Abraham did in Genesis. Isaac did in Genesis. David did in 1 Samuel. Paul did in Acts. And even Jesus did in Matthew. God himself, even in Hebrews 6, take oaths of witnessing. The point is, though, that when an oath shows up, it is a serious thing. Okay, It's not like when my children, something happens and I say, now who did this? And one of them says, I didn't do it, I swear. All right, It's not the same thing as here. Here, this is one who swears, takes an oath, and it is serious business. This one swears an oath... And takes it, not just in any name, he takes it in the name of the living God who lives forever and ever. He's the one that's created the earth, the heaven, and the sea, and all that is in it. He alone is the uncaused cause of all that is. I saw a book walking through the bookstore the other day that says, explaining why there is anything at all. You know, the... This sounds almost ridiculous. But the hardest question for scientists to answer who don't believe in God is why is there anything at all? If there's no first starter, why is there anything at all? Now, I, I meant to give you a question tonight just to make you sit up at night and think. But we have that answer. It's because God always was. And so He spoke and it came into being. Well, this one confirms the word by making an oath. And then what he confirms is this. There will be no longer a delay. 
The answers of the question of the martyrs in 610, How long, O Lord, will be answered? God will not stop or slow the remaining flood of judgments. Evil will now earn its course quickly. The Antichrist will rise from the abyss. The world ruler will emerge. God, evil, Satan, and the Savior are headed for the cosmic conflict to end all conflicts. And when the seventh trumpet blows, it will happen. So he says to John, basically in this vision, first of all, you may not be comfortable with everything you've seen, but it's true. Accept it. Secondly, everything you're about to see is going to happen. It's inevitable. So that leads to the third thing, which is this. God's Word must be shared. He basically says, because of what you've seen and what you're about to see, you have got to take a message to people. Alright? How does he tell him to do that? What's the visual image he gives him? What does he tell him to do? He tells him to take the scroll and eat it. Alright? Um, it's interesting because the wording is pretty similar here to what we see in Revelation chapter 5 when the Lamb goes and he takes the scroll. Okay? Now, I didn't see this anywhere, so this is Lyle's interpretation from the study I did and looking in the Scripture. I think that it's almost as if these interludes serve as moments of God saying, this is the universal truth distributed because of what Jesus has done. Now it's your job to take it to the people whom you encounter. And so this little scroll is a representation of the big scroll that gives the end of the world. And this is to be ingested by us and lived out so that people see it. All right? He tells them, first of all, to take it, to, to actually grab the Word. We, we have been given the privilege of God's Word, these 66 books, and we need to listen to it. We need to read it. We need to love it. We need to take it into everything we do. Then he tells to, to, to try the Word, to eat it. And for us, now you realize, I'm not saying that John didn't actually eat whatever he gave him, but there's a symbolic meaning there, right? I mean, he didn't want him just to eat some paper so he could eat some paper. The idea is, make this part of your life. Okay. Now, Scripture is called different kinds of food throughout Scripture, right? God's Word is. What kind of food is it related to in Scripture? Bread, Bread milk, meat, and honey. All right? And so you have this idea. Now, one of the interesting things is, it gives this description of as he began to eat it, and it tells him as he eats it, it's going to be sweet in the mouth and bitter in the stomach. Now, we can think of real-world illustrations of that. When, when Halloween comes, if my boys eat all three packs of king-size Skittles, they're going to be sweet in the mouth and sour in the belly. Right? We tell them, you all eat too much sweet stuff, you're going to get a bellyache. All right? What is happening here, I think, is what's happening is John is eating it and it is sweet because it's the word of God's words of God. But then, as he understands it more and more, he realizes the impact on those people around him who are not believers. And we can be honest. Listen, I can read Revelation, especially some of the good stuff we're going to get to at the end. And I can rejoice because as a believer in Jesus Christ, my hope is secure in Him and it is a glorious future. But at the same time, every one of us in this room probably knows family members or close friends 
that are not followers of Jesus Christ. And when we read this part about what their fate is, it is sour in the stomach. So John takes it and he eats it, and then God says basically, now go tell it. Go live it. You must, a moral imperative, continue to preach and to prophesy. Everyone, everywhere, basically, needs to hear. Our job is to continue to do that. And so one pastor summarized these verses. John realizes at the end his mandate and responsibility. We have one as well. We have in our possession bread for the hungry, water for the thirsty, and life for the dying. It is unconscionable that we would keep this precious treasure to ourselves. Take the word, try the word, tell the word. Nothing less will be sufficient for the souls of men. Nothing less will be worthy of the Savior who died for the sins of the world. Alright? So again, think through as we go through Revelation, those in your life that may need to hear this message.